Thank you very much. God bless you. <laughs> I appreciate these dear ones who travel with me and encourage me. God bless them. And Stephen and Lydia are some of our favorite people in the whole world. I want to tell you, young people, something. I've been a preacher of the gospel for 52 years, Amen. as the pastor said. 52 years. <laughs> and I have never heard a group of young people who encouraged me more than you did tonight with your singing. Stay at it. Stay at it. The Lord has used you in such a special way. Stay at it. May God bless you for it. I appreciate all of you preachers being here. God bless you. I have some very precious friends who have been here for my friends for many, many years. And God bless them. I appreciate them being in this meeting. I have two books I want to give you. I want to give you a copy of How to Master the English Bible. My friend, Dr. Bob Norman, put it in my hand when I was about 19 or 20 years old. And he said, this book will change your life. James M. Gray was the president of Moody Bible Institute for about 30 years. And he put in this book how to study the Bible. And actually, it says how to master the English Bible. And the truth is, it's how the English Bible can master you. And it directed my study of the scriptures for, a, for a half a century. And I want you to have a copy of it. And I added to this, it's been out of print for 50 years, I added to this in the Crown Publication copy that we made, the effect of the Bible on the life of Abraham Lincoln. I think you'll really enjoy that. And then this is a book I wrote on under the furtherance of the gospel. And it's about truth, friendship, and world evangelism. That's, those are the key points of our Baptist friends. Every year we have a Baptist friends meeting, and that meeting takes place this year starting on Easter Sunday, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'd like to send this to you. If you'll give me your address, mailing address, uh, give it to Stephen or Lydia, either one, and we'll make sure that we mail a copy of this out to you in the next two or three days. It'll be headed your way. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate Brother Cofield. He's been a great blessing, a great encouragement to me. And I, I thank God for that. If you fellows could help me hear myself just a little bit more, I'd appreciate that. Not that I have any interesting, interesting to say. It'll just help me preach a little bit. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. I was in this part of the world for quite a long time. I started 62 bus routes. Amen. For Dr. Lee Robertson at the Highland Park Baptist Church. <laughs> we were driving through Chattanooga and these young people said, do you understand anything about this city? And I said, quite a bit. When you start 62 bus routes, you learn lots of things, don't you? Those were the days. And, uh, of course, we thought it'd just continue that way forever. But this is the day God's given us. Let's make the most of it. I'm going to preach as fast as I can if you'll listen that way. We won't be here too awfully long. Let's bow in prayer together, may we? Our Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word. 
We thank you that we've learned to put our confidence in thee, Lord, not in ourselves or our ability. I recognize my human weakness, and I trust thee, Lord Jesus, for thy strength. Please demonstrate thy power and strength in my weakness. I do praise thee, Father, for the measure of strength I have that allows me to be here in this place and to press forward in thy wonderful work. Take this meeting where it pleased thee for it to go. Encourage our hearts. Help us to encourage ourselves in thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to take the word of God and turn with me, please, to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in just a moment in Luke, chapter 1, with verse 1. Luke, chapter 1, and verse 1. I have gone through 25 years now of reconstructive spine surgeries, nine of them, and uh, had my entire spine reconstructed. I have a metal neck and titanium rods from top to bottom. I am not in any pain. A little discomfort from time to time, but I'm not required to take any kind of pain medicine, and I give God the glory for that. We have 3,700 graduates from Crown College now. They're in every state in America and on every continent of the world. And I'd like for you, if you've attended the college or graduated from it, I'd like for you to stand just for a moment, would you please? Very good. And I want to thank you. I deeply appreciate all that God is doing through your lives. We all give our lives to something or someone. And this helps me. And when I see Evelyn a little later, God willing, I'll tell her that I saw you here. We'll both rejoice again that the Lord's given us this opportunity. I want you to look at the Word of God with me, please. We'll begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 1, if you'll follow along. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of the things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I want you to mark one word, if you would please, in these first four verses. The word I want you to mark is found in the fourth verse. Please notice it. The human penman, Luke, and the inspiration of the Spirit of God gives us this word, it is the word certainty, certainty. He mentions order in verse 1. He mentions order again in verse 3. He uses this marvelous expression in verse 1, those things which are most surely believed among us. And I'm going to speak to you for just a little while on the certainty of our Christian faith. Amen. It's a faith without doubt. Amen. It is to be a faith without compromise or disobedience. Sir. 
is a faith once delivered but must be contended for in every generation. Those of us who say we know the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior have an irreducible body of truth. You can't take anything else from it. It's an irreducible body of truth, and we adhere to that. We're held by it, and we hold on to it. It is our Christian faith. And I want us to think about the certainty of our Christian faith. It is passed from one generation to the next as we earnestly contend for it. It moves from faith to faith. How shall we continue the Christian faith in our day? Where is the work of Christ going in our day? What will people say about what we've done with what God gave us to do with? And I want you to know something about the certainty of our Christian faith. When I was a student at the University of Tennessee years ago and a course in anthropology, I followed Dr. Bass back to his office in the Klung Tower area. He had just come to the university from Kansas. He was renowned in his anthropology. He was called the leading physical anthropologist in the nation. He's the man who came up with the body farm where you could take investigators and look at dead bodies and get clues. He's the man they called to parts of South America to identify a German people who had escaped, Nazi people who had escaped and lived out their days and died and been buried there. He was an amazing man, but he claimed to be a Christian. But every day in class he enjoyed poking fun of the Christian faith. He said, I'm a Sunday school teacher. And he named the church where he was a Sunday school teacher in the city of Knoxville. And so I decided one day I'd walk him back to his class. And I, I was trembling about the thing. These are powerful people, you know, when you're a student. And I asked him one simple question. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? You have absolute assurance that you're a child of God. And he said, young man, you ought to be a preacher. And I think he was trying to pass the thing on down the line a little bit. He had complimentary things to say, but he could never tell me for sure that he knew the Lord. I respected him. I showed him respect, which I think I should have done. And he showed me respect, and I appreciated that. But I want to know if you don't think the same thing I do that there are probably millions of people who profess to be Christians all across our land and different places around the world who have no certainty about their Christian faith. They don't speak it with authority. Now, we shouldn't be proud that we're Christians. We should be grateful if we truly know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Truly grateful not running around with chest out and head up thinking we're better than anybody, but truly grateful that someone got to us with the gospel and we found the Lord as our personal Savior. What about the certainty of our Christian faith? Until we really come to the certainty of our Christian faith, 
There will be no bold witnessing on our part. No enthusiasm, no eagerness, no forthrightness about Christ and His marvelous work in our lives. It requires certainty in each one of God's children to be the witness that he or she ought to be. We're living in an unusual age, but everybody's thought that. I just finished preaching through the book of Ezra, and I really want to talk to you about Ezra because your favorite book of the Bible is the one you're in at that time, you know. I just brought the 13th message from the book of Ezra, and they found the Jewish people in such a state when the remnant came back to Jerusalem. And I thought to myself, it was no surprise. But that's what everybody sees. When you become somewhat discerning about what's going on with God's work in the world, you see so many pitiful things that disturb your heart. This age that you and I live in is called the age of the unraveling. The editorialist of the New York Times propagated that story and kept it in the papers for quite a while so that people would agree with them or disagree. They said when historians write about the time you and I are living in right now, they will call it the time of the great unraveling. Institutional things that stood firm for centuries. For example, from time and memorial all the way back to Adam and Eve. If anybody mentioned the word marriage, they knew it was between a man and a woman. This is the first time in human history, in human history, that that is unraveling as it is unraveling before our very eyes. It's also called the time and age of compound confusion. Not just confusion, but compound confusion, meaning there are layers and layers and layers of confusion. Not just darkness, but layers and layers and layers of darkness. And that's what we've come to. Sometimes even Christian people twiddle their thumbs and think about, well, what do we really need today? What we need today is certainty. Only certainty in our Christian faith will bring the two things necessary which is clarity and urgency. You see, you may think, well, I know I'm a child of God. What about the certainty of your Christian faith? Are you so certain that you can speak with clarity? Are you so certain that you live in a sense of urgency? You and I check our response to things and we observe the response of other Christians. We must some way surmise that something's missing because there's so much confusion, so little clarity, and so little moving to action, so little urgency. We can hear a song about the coming of the Lord but we're not moved to do much about it. I think every time I come down here to preach, and I appreciate every invitation I've had, I think about the preaching of George Whitfield in this part of the world. And I, I often think about these same hills and, and areas where he, where he stood and preached the Word of God, where he came forth with such challenging messages, and God anointed him and used him in such a mighty way that the history of our nation was shaped 
by this man's preaching. And I think to myself again, would to God he would rise up again. And some of that power and blessing be on other believers. What about the certainty of our Christian faith? I live in the city of Knoxville. It's one of the sweet cities of the South. About 10 years ago, it was called the most biblical city in America. And the Southern Baptists who had money to spend came in and took a survey of Knoxville. There's 471,000 people who are citizens of Knox County. And they found that 40% of the people in Knoxville no longer attend church. And another 40% say they're done and they'll never go back to church. There is a church in Knox County for every 1,000 people. Pretty amazing, isn't it? 471,000 people and there's a church for every 1,000 people. They're everywhere. And they found that only 19% of 471,000 people living in what was called the most biblical city in America just a decade ago, only 19% of the people are actively involved in a church in Knoxville. And I ask you again, what about the certainty of our Christian faith? My mother became a Christian not many years before she died, but she lived most of her life in uncertainty. You could never discuss the subject of death because it overwhelmed her. And I'm sure that many of you know people like that because they have no certainty in their Christian faith. My father died when he was 57 years old of his seventh heart attack and he became a Christian just a short while before he died. I have hope of seeing him in heaven. As a matter of fact, my mother said, your daddy's got religion. That's the only way she could express it. But he had very little certainty about God or God's word his entire life. And I want you to know that the people you know, you work with, Many of the people you live with are living their entire existence in uncertainty, unraveling, in compounded confusion. And what all of them need is a Christian who absolutely has the certainty of his Christian faith. Notice again what Luke wrote here. And he says that thou mightest know the certainty, chapter 1, verse 4, of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. May I say to you in simplicity, and I trust godly sincerity, that we are certain that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. We're certain of it. There's no question about it. A great deal of detail is given in this gospel record. In the beautiful accounts given... Luke chapter 2 and prior to that in the first chapters we walk into chapter 2 dealing with the virgin birth of Christ with the clear teaching and the certainty of the fact that God became a man without ceasing to be God. 
You ought to write that down somewhere because you need to tell somebody that. Because the only way of salvation is the one who came, who became a man, and he did it without ceasing to be God. Mary simply brought forth what God sent forth into the world. She was God's instrument to deliver the Savior into the world. And so we are certain of the virgin birth of Christ. We are certain of the sinless life of Christ. The sinless life of Christ. He's the only perfect one who ever lived. The Bible says in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one turned to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Word of God tells us many things about Christ and what He came to do in the Old Testament. But we give gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to describe for us the clarity and the certainty of the sinless life of Christ. Even to the statement of government officials saying, I find no fault in Him. No fault in Him. The sinless Son of God. Why is that important? Because he paid our sin debt. Just for the record, I believe he tasted death for every man. And we never witnessed to the wrong person. Never to the wrong person. We ought to be whosoever will people. We ought to say, God so loved the world. That's what Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but everlasting life. So he lived a sinless life. And when the billows of God's wrath rolled in the Son of God, And he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and have his imputed righteousness put on our account. He did not die for any sin he committed. He lived a sinless life. And I'm certain of it. Are you certain of it? I'm certain that he went to the cross and gave his life for our salvation. As a matter of fact, the record in the gospel according to Luke, as he lays it out in order, he gently brings us to the cross. And as he brings us to the cross, he gives us the details of the crucifixion of Christ, the horrible things, as the Son of God offered himself a payment for our sin. Without any resistance, He gave himself into the hands of sinners to do with him as they pleased. We know that they came looking for him with torches and lanterns and perhaps thinking he was going to run and hide and try to escape in a cave somewhere. They'd have to dig him out and search him out. But when they came across the Kidron into Gethsemane, he stepped forward. And when he spoke, they fell to the ground. And if you want to know how hard a human heart can become, these people who came for him, who fell to the ground at the sound of his voice, got back up and took him to be crucified. He died for us. He hung and bled and died on that cross. And why? If you'd been there, you said, I saw them drive the... Nails and spikes into his hands and feet. I was a witness to the suffering that they put him through. I saw his bruised and beaten and bloody body hanging on the cross. And I witnessed these cruel-hearted people and what they, they did to him. 
then you have to step back for a moment and reconsider when you start thinking about who did all of this and read again the simplest yet most profound verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's hard for me to imagine that the prophet said it pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. That's how much He loved you. He loved me. People, when I was a boy, I thought they need to feel sorry for me and Perhaps God would have mercy on me because I was just a pitiful child in a broken home and father a gambler and mother with two nervous breakdowns. <laughs> I remember one nervous breakdown she had in Chattanooga. I was about seven years old. My father was gone. All we had was a hot plate. And I cooked her meals on that hot plate. I can still remember putting butter in the skillet to melt, putting the bread in it, and then putting eggs in it. That's all I knew how to fix with a younger brother and two younger sisters and feeding and nursing my mother back to health until she could get better. And someone might have seen all that and said, you know, it's pitiful. He really needs, he really needs an entrance in. But I'm going to tell you, I have not built up any merit and neither have you. We have no merit with God. All the merit is with the Lord Jesus. Everything God forgives you of, He doesn't forgive you because you deserve it. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Every time you seek forgiveness from the Lord, every time you receive forgiveness from the Lord, the Lord looks first at Jesus Christ. And he knows he suffered for your sin and paid your debt on that cross. And he forgives you. For Christ's sake, he forgives you. All the glory and wonder of it all. Listen, listen. I'm certain that he died for me. I'm certain of it. And every time someone follows him in believer's baptism and identifies himself with the Lord Jesus Christ, they stand in the water like the cross where Jesus died. The water crosses their body. They go beneath the water like Jesus went in the grave. They come up out of the water like Christ came out of the grave alive forever. And it pictures our death and our burial and our resurrection with the Lord Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, we identify with him. We remember his shed blood, his broken body as we come to the Lord's table. Look, I'm certain in my Christian faith. I'm certain that God himself became a man and bore my sins on the cross and died for me. And by the way, I'm certain that he rose from the grave. You know, he went so far as to say, because I live, you shall live also. That's powerful, isn't it? And when you get to doubting things, I asked Dr. Curtis Setson one time when we were praying together and he was so seriously ill, are you afraid about dying? He said, I don't know, I've never done it. <laughs> what a man. What a man. But he and my mother and so many that I've known and loved and walked with in life, I've seen them meet death with such courage because they were certain that he rose from the dead. 
This is meaningful, people. So meaningful. I was in a hospital room not long ago, and one of our church members' brother was there, looked up to everything, and he said, John, is it all right with you if I go on to heaven? And his brother just said, why, why, sure. He said, would you call them in here, please? And they called the attending nurses in, and he said, I want you to know something. I know you're trying to do everything imaginable for me, but I'm not going to get well, and you're just keeping me here longer. I'd just like to go on to glory if you'll unplug these things. And he turned to his brother and said, would you like to stay here with me for just a few minutes? I'll be in heaven after that. Now, what kind of human being can do that? My mother was so frightened, frightened of death, she would never let me even speak to her. She was abused as a child all of her life, had to leave home when she was 14 years old because of an abusive stepfather. Never had much of a life. She came to Christ after she was diagnosed with cancer. We asked God, my brother and sisters asked God to allow my mother not only to come to the Lord, we prayed for her salvation, but to let her live long enough. After they said she'll only live six months, she lived 12 years. Let her live long enough to experience the Christian life. And I was with her the day she went to heaven. We were in the room with her. She had been five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds. She was still nearly five feet tall and weighed 60 pounds. Lying in a bed. She had not spoken or opened her eyes in a long time. But then she opened her eyes. Brightly they shined. I saw her beautiful brown eyes beaming and a smile across her face. This is the same woman that refused for me to speak to her about death and dying and salvation for years. And if ever a boy loved his mother, I loved my mother. My wife says, you're just like her. And the tone she uses in that <laughs> comment sometimes doesn't mean what I really want it to mean. But I was there. And I said, Mother, God's been so good to us. And she said, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I never knew why she said three times wonderful. But maybe wonderful to God the Father. Wonderful to God the Son. Wonderful to God the Holy Spirit. I don't know. And then in just a moment, she smiled as brightly as she ever smiled in her whole life. And she closed her eyes and went peacefully into the arms of Jesus. What does that mean to you? What would it mean to you as the oldest of four children who in life had nursed his mother back to health in two nervous breakdowns? It meant I'd see her again. We'd walk together and have pleasant times together again. You know why? Because I am certain that he rose from the dead. Certain of it. Let me read a little something to you. In the 24th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, the Bible says after his resurrection, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses 
and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said in verse 46 of Luke 24, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day. And that's what he said, there's no other way. This is the only way God made. There's not ten ways to heaven, two ways to heaven. We talk about the exclusivity of Christ in salvation and also deal with the individual soul liberty of a human being. You can't force anyone to become a Christian. You can't force anyone to live the Christian life. But when we think of salvation, we have the exclusivity of Christ. That means exclusively salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. No other way. And we believe. We're convinced. We live with this conviction. We're certain that he's the only person ever on this earth who was born of a virgin. He's the only one who ever lived a sinless life. He's the one who died for us and rose from the dead for us, and we're, we're certain of it. Dr. Lee Robertson and I traveled many times from Chattanooga to Knoxville, especially the day his wife told me, he's not going to drive with me in the car anymore. <laughs> You should have been with us that day when I arrived at his house there on Missionary Ridge and I said, uh, I'm going to drive you to Knoxville. He says, I know it. And he had his tan overcoat and his suitcase by his side. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm mad and you know it. <laughs> I said, well, just calm down, please. I've got a nice car for you to ride in. Evelyn's with us. And Mrs. Robertson and I and you are going to have a a great trip up from here, and we would talk about everything imaginable. I remember one conversation we got in about death, and he said, I'm not afraid to die. I should have had more faith. That shocked me. I should have had more faith, and I scolded him, and I said, now what in the world do you mean by that? I said, you started a college, a university, a radio station, a paper, your graduates are scattered around the world, but he said, but I know, I know, almost this forcefully, I know, I could have believed God for greater things. He said it just like that. And I wonder when we get nearer the end, at least when we recognize it's near the end, if that's what we shall say. Not what we've done what we could have done. There's enough love in this room for Dr. Lee Robertson. If it was any greater, it'd be worship. I understand that. That's the way I feel. The day he said to me, I know I'm like a father to you and you're like a son to me. That was one of the great days of my life. But it's what he knew about Jesus Christ and was certain of that guided his life. You and I need a new dose of this. I'm not trying to be hard on you, but something's missing. 
and this Christianity we have today. This take it or leave it faith. Something's missing. We know we don't see the zeal, the enthusiasm, the evangelistic thrust. You know why? We know we see too much down in the mouth, discouragement. You know why? Because we've lost our certainty. I'm certain that he sent the Holy Spirit. I'm certain he ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. Because I'm indwelt by him. You and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost. As Henry Scogel wrote in the 1600s, we have the life of God living in the soul of man. The life of God living in the soul of man. We're never alone and never forsaken. I'm certain that he sent the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Luke chapter 24, in verse 48, ye are witnesses of these things. And he uses witness here as a noun, not a verb. And behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And we know that power is from the Holy Ghost. And we can be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Dr. Robertson was walking across a campground one time in New England and a young man ran out and said, you just preached on the filling of the Holy Spirit, and I have a question for you. And he never got over this. The young man said, are you this moment filled with the Holy Spirit? And I say to you, and you can say to me, please do, are you this moment filled with the Holy Spirit? It's what makes the difference. I was preaching in the First Baptist Church in Friendsville, Tennessee. I was 19 years old, clinging to my notes, trying to get the message out that I was to preach. And God began to deal with me. And I said, as I cried out from my heart, Oh, God, I need you. I can't do this in my own strength. And I believe that's the first time I ever recognized that I could be filled with God's Spirit and preach His Word in His power. And I know when I'm not where I need to be and where I need to be and acting the way I need to act, behaving like I ought to behave as a Christian, it's because I'm not certain of the Holy Spirit's filling. And may I say, I'm certain He's coming again. Same human penman in the book of Acts. Same human penman. And he writes of the passion of Christ and His suffering. And his witness. And then in verse 8 he says, Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, Acts 1. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said unto them, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. What's wrong with us? Why do we watch the evening news and know the world's in a mess? Why do we get news like a thousand Baptist churches will close this year in America? 3,000 who are not Baptist and their churches will close in America. Why do we hear things like of the 3,186 counties in America, there's not one county, not one county in America where more people are attending churches than there were 10 years ago. Not one. Why do we get things like this? 482 churches in London, England have been sold to the Muslims and the Muslims have turned those 482 churches into Islamic mosques. They have an Islamic mayor in London, England, once the most English Protestant, if you like the word, city in the world. There's 700 Muslims who live in New York City. At any moment, when they get the right candidate, they'll elect an Islamic mayor for the largest city in America. And already for the first time in American history, a United States congressperson says, No! I will not put my hand on the Bible. I don't believe it. And then has rallies all over the country about how America can be converted to Islam. You can see them for yourself. But why? Why? Why aren't we stirred up like we ought to be stirred up? What's happened to us? I believe with all of my heart that we've lost our certainty. Hence, no real clarity, no real urgency. You and I need to get along with God. As Vance Havner once said in my presence, get somewhere and get the dirty ditches cleaned out so the Holy Spirit can flow again in your life. And let's get on with the work God's given us to do while there's some time to do it. The certainty of our Christian faith. 